Thank you, Lord, indeed. As we turn to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5, let me just remind you of something you already know, something we've already been singing about. How many of you know that to be a Christian is to be at war? And the enemy in this warfare is not just out there someplace, those people, that culture. The front line in this warfare is within you and within me. To be a Christian, uh, to belong to the kingdom of heaven where Christ reigns as king, is to wage war against indwelling sin. Whose sin? Your sin. My sin. Christian, are you fighting this war? Do you have a sense of doing battle with the sinfulness that still remains within you? The sin you now hate as a child of God. Or are you perhaps waving the white flag of surrender through compromise, through complacency? Or perhaps you are here this morning and you're waging this warfare and you feel discouraged and you feel discouraged to the point of asking yourself, why, why keep fighting? I pray that our King, Jesus, will not only warn us this morning in his word, but that he will encourage our hearts as well. Our text this morning demands that we ask the questions that I just put before us. We fight sin within us by faith. Faith in Christ's power to make us like him. Amen? Amen. Faith in his promise that one day we will live and reign with our king in a sinless new heaven and new earth. This is our hope. This is our assurance. We, we've, we battle from the high ground of Christ's victory. Until then, life in the kingdom demands a lifestyle of warfare against indwelling sin. Now, that's basically the whole message, but you, I think you understand how this is going to go. Let's turn now to the scriptures, verse 27 of, of Matthew 5. The words of our Savior Jesus, speaking to his people, his kingdom people, about life in the kingdom. This is how Christians are meant to live. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now what a drastic, radical message this is from our king. What in the world is this about? 
We need to know this as kingdom people. Well, let me just remind you where we've been so far so that we have the context. Matthew's gospel has told us already that the coming of Jesus into this world is is nothing less than a, a new genesis, a new beginning for God's world and for God's people. The king has come to undo what sin has messed up, including the sin in you and in me. God has sent his world and his people a king, Jesus. And and now our king, God the Son, has come to deliver his people from bondage to sin. Remember this wonderful verse, Matthew 1, 23? Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Notice the certainty of deliverance. He will save his people from their sin. A Christian, a a person who is born of the Spirit of God to to repent of her sinfulness and to wholly trust in the work of Christ for salvation is one who has been saved from sin's penalty, hell. Don't you delight in this? To know that you have been rescued by the King. That's justification, right? And, And justification is immediate, it is final, uh, the same way when a baby is born, that baby is not going to be born physically again. And so it is with the new birth. A Christian is also one who is being saved in real time, day by day, from the power of sin to influence his thoughts and his living. That's sanctification, right? Salvation in its present tense. Sanctification is progressive. Think of that in in the natural order. When a baby is born, can you imagine asking someone, hey, what did you name your child? Well, we haven't named him. He's already working for Merrill Lynch as a stockbroker. What? No, I mean, there's a season of maturing, right? And so it is in the new birth. We're matu- are you maturing as a believer? Do you have a sense of that? What a wonderful gift this is from God. You're being saved from the power of sin in your life. Christ will be victorious in this. He will save his people from their sins. In fact, this victory of saving you from your sins is already underway. That is true for every true believer. Vital to our sanctification then, are you still with me? Vital to our sanctification then is our right understanding of God's moral law. Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is expositing the moral law. In chapter 5 in particular, he is correcting the wrong understanding of God's moral law, the ten words, the, the Decalogue, the ten commandments. We've called these the the six antitheses because Jesus six times will say, I know you've been taught this, but here's what I say. The, the, The law is not something we obey in order to be saved. We've already failed at that. Every one of us. Christ has fulfilled the law for his people, right? And yet the moral law reflects God's own nature. 
And so it, it reflects the nature that his image bearers, that's you and me, are meant to have. And, and so for the believer, God's moral law then becomes a blueprint for living out the best life that God has for his people. We, that's the gospel way. And it is a narrow way. Remember this from a, a couple of weeks ago. It's the narrow way of faith that allows us to avoid the pitfalls of legalism, as we're going to see in just a moment, and also the pitfall of license. You know, the we're grace people, we don't care about sin anymore type people. Well, that brings us to verse 27. And by the way, this is the beginning of the message if you're someone who checks your watch. You have heard that it was said to those of old. The, the, the Pharisees were legalists, as you know. Uh, they had by now led multiple generations of people, uh, God's people, to misuse and abuse the moral law. In, in what way? You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, period. Okay, now let, let's just stop there. That, that is technically what the moral law says, isn't it? And the Pharisees, as you know, were only concerned about technicalities. Just as with murder, well, what, what is murder really? The seventh commandment clearly states, you shall not commit adultery. Who is you? You. You who are God's people. And we don't want to race past that. And, and get to the corrective just yet. This is not the part Jesus is correcting. God calls his people to sexual purity outside of marriage and sexual fidelity within marriage. It wouldn't be a bad thing to write that down. This is how we reflect God's nature to our community. This is how we function as salt in the community, preventing rot in a culture that is rotting with perversion. This is how we function as light, dispelling the darkness of sin in rebellion in a community that is just sexually charged, really. But the Pharisees had taught, you're still listening, the Pharisees had taught that as long as you didn't literally engage in the physical act of adultery, sexual relations with someone you're not married to, you were obeying the law. No, says Jesus. That's not so. Never has been so. Not even close. The law communicates to God's people God's own heart of holiness. And so it is the heart of his people that concerns our king. Our king is not concerned with gathering a bunch of people to himself who technically are not adulterers in the strictest sense. Just as God's people are not to harbor sinfully angry, murderous hearts, so God's people are not to harbor adulterous hearts. Verse 28, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Notice the phrase, looks to lust. In fact, you might even circle that in your friend's Bible because they're going to forget this. 
it's not the fleeting glance. It's not the notice of another person's attractiveness that Jesus is talking about here. It's the purposeful act of the mind, the, the, the deliberate act of the will, the, the, the plan, if you will, to indulge lust. It's the second look, the second glance. Now, here is a verse that gets all up in my business and says to me, your thoughts matter to God. Your private imaginings matter to God. Says who? Says the king who will save his people from their sins. The thoughts that I savor reflect the reality of who I am at my core. This is a matter of the heart. And don't look at me like that. This is true for you too. Now for the sake of clarity, Jesus is not saying that lustful thoughts are the same thing as adultery. In, in the same way that angry thoughts are not the same thing as murder. Remember I told you that a couple of weeks ago. I'd much rather you be mad at me than kill me. Okay, was, Jesus isn't saying... Um, a lustful thought is literally the same thing as adultery. Uh, adultery breaks a marriage covenant. We'll look at that next week, Lord willing. Lustful thoughts do not. Adultery provides grounds, at least, for divorce. Adulterous thoughts do not. So, so what is Jesus talking about here? The same moral law that prohibits sexual impurity prohibits the desire for sexual impurity. So anybody feeling the weight of this just yet? Listen, purity of thought is God's loving hedge around the gift of sexual intimacy in marriage. Marriage was established before the fall of man by God as a, as a sacred relationship, one man married to one woman. Sex within that marriage, that sacred union, is a pure and precious gift from God. It's so precious that it's to be enjoyed. It's so pure that it's to be protected. To violate God's design for that gift, whether in deed or in thought, Jesus says, offends God's holiness, it distorts God's image in man. Would it bother you if this were practical for just a minute? That means pornography is expressly forbidden by the seventh commandment. That means lesbianism and homosexuality are expressly forbidden by the seventh commandment. And in our culture today, People will say, well, wait a minute. These are modern times. What, what about gay marriage? I mean, that's within marriage, right? No. No. In, biblically, there's no such thing as gay marriage. Can we agree to that? But here's the truth. That Jesus wants his people, his kingdom people to wrestle with. Any disordered sexual desires distort God's image in man. It's not just how you act on those desires, says the king. 
It's to do with your thoughts for such desires. And and before we jump into um, verses 29 and 30, can, can we at least stop and acknowledge the obvious? Every person in this room with a functioning conscience knows themselves to be a lawbreaker. The law is doing its work. What man or woman has never had a lustful thought? Robert Murray McShane, Scottish preacher, said this. He said, most of God's people are content to be saved from the hell that is without. They are not so anxious to be saved from the hell that is within. Jesus comes and he says to his people, I've come to save you from hell the wrath of God for all eternity. I have finished this work and I am going to finish the work of saving you from the hell within. I've brought you out of your Egypt. I'm going to get Egypt out of you. Only one man, the man Christ Jesus, fulfilled the seventh commandment. And you see, the Pharisees, just as legalists today, always construed the moral law in such a way that you could at least look like you were obeying it. It was all about appearances. And they could still be rotten on the inside. Jesus says, hey, you you guys are like whitewashed tombs. There's still a corpse in there. And this is powerfully illustrated um, in John's gospel in the account of a woman caught in the act of adultery. And I want us to just look at that together. It's a bit of an excursion, but, it, but it's, it's hand in glove with Jesus' teaching here. John chapter 8. Always bring your Bible, right? John chapter 8. I trust this is, is known well to many of us. Beginning with verse 3, John 8 waiting for the pages to stop rustling. This is my favorite sound, by the way. (laughs) The scribes and Pharisees brought to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Notice that all these Pharisees care about is the outward act. They caught this woman in the very act. How, how bizarre. And obviously if they caught her, they also caught the creep who was with her, her partner. Uh, but then, as now, th- there was a cultural double standard that excused men of their boorish behavior. Listen, God has no such double standard. He didn't then and he doesn't now. The Old Testament law code made adultery a capital offense. Death by stoning for both men and women, though that didn't happen much in Jesus' day. To make the point, it's about to happen, thanks to these Pharisees and scribes. This Jesus of Nazareth has come and he said, look, I didn't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. So so what will he do now to this shameful, immoral, pathetic 
woman. She's guilty. Look at verse 6. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Jesus stoops down into the dust where they had thrown this woman. What a parable of the gospel this is. Our king has stooped down from the glory of his heaven down into this dirty world of ours, down into the dirt and filth where every single man and woman lives under the accusing weight of God's law, willfully or in ignorance. And the king has stooped down so that he might place himself between this guilty woman and the law's just accusation. I beg you to hear this. If you're here this morning and you feel the weight of the law, you are normal. This is a gift from God that your conscience is working in this way. Adulter at heart that you are, please know that Jesus has come to stand between you and the law's just condemnation. Do you believe this? This is not to do with condemnation. The just wrath of God that burns against all adulterous thinking, let alone how a person might act out on those thoughts. Look at verse 7. So when they continued asking him, they're just really going to press the point here. Jesus raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. You know, you know this. Have you read this before? Of course, of course. Who among us today could throw a stone at such a person as this shameful woman? Knowing what we know to be true, about our own private thoughts. I wonder how many men in Christ's church today would condemn an outwardly adulterous woman while hiding a secret indulgence in pornography. I mean, as long as you keep the computer and the tablet clean, it'll it'll at least look like you have a clean heart, right? I wonder how many women in Christ church today would loudly condemn the man who cheats, dirtbag that he is, all the while daydreaming of another fellow, that, that fellow on, on the, the social media feed, the, the book, the fellow in the book everybody's talking about these days, maybe even the man she's invented in her own imagination. God's law, rightly understood, compels all of us to drop any stones we might be inclined to throw at another sinner. Are you hearing this? Jesus allowed a little bit of time for the consciences of his listeners to kick in. The law has done its work. It has shut the mouths of all the legalists, all the spiritual posers, all the whitewashed tombs, 
They're all guilty before God and they know it, so off they go. Verse 9, then those who heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. If you're one of the oldest among us, pat yourself on the back. It's just showing that there's wisdom in a few years of life going by. They clue into conscience a bit quicker. Jesus left alone, says John, and the woman standing in the midst. This woman cannot get away from her loudest accuser. And neither can you and neither can I. Her loudest accuser remains. She can't get away from the accusation that's screaming in her own conscience. Truth is, she's guilty of far more than she's being accused of. And isn't that true for all of us? Verse 10, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Jesus said, no one, Lord. How interesting, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Listen, does your conscience accuse you today? Then look to this man who is God. Look to this Jesus, the only man with a clean conscience who ever walked planet Earth. And he's come to set your conscience at ease. Listen, not by pretending your adultery, your, your lustful, adulterous thoughts don't matter. Don't, don't think that. He's come to take the full force of God's just wrath for every lustful thought you've ever had. Every thought you've ever had that is an offense to God has been punished in Christ for you. You who are his people. Do you believe this? A couple of you. Do you believe this? This is good news. This is the gospel. And as you follow this Jesus by faith, he promises to kill off the remaining sin within you. Will you trust him? Salvation in all of its tenses, in other words, is of the Lord. Anyway, this, this woman is spared for the same reason you can be scared. She's with Jesus. Are you with Jesus? She's with Jesus, the king who's come to obey the law and then be condemned by God in place of his law-breaking people. Hallelujah. What a savior we have. King Jesus condemns no one whose sins he came to take away. Notice that Jesus then says in verse 11, we're still in in John 8, and so this technically isn't part of the message, again, for you timekeepers. Jesus says in verse 11, go and sin no more. Now that is essentially, back in Matthew 5 now, that is essentially what Jesus is describing in the Sermon on the Mount as he describes the believer's battle with indwelling sin. For us, uh, the king reigns. 
Sin no longer reigns, but it does remain, doesn't it? And it's being killed off, and it's being killed off in, in us the same way it is going to be killed off in this woman. She is now set free to turn her affections toward her king, to live for him, not, not to live by her base desires. How many of you know love for the king brings holy order to disordered desires? This isn't just a matter of gutting it out and hoping against hope. No, your hope is in the king, not in you. And it's love for the king that brings order to these sinful desires. So, so back in Matthew 5, having corrected the legalistic teaching about the seventh commandment, Jesus then looks at the other pitfall that's on the the other side of the gospel's narrow way, and that is the pitfall of license. Or I called it a few weeks ago, antinomianism. And none of you disagreed with that, so we'll go with that. (laughs) Against law, okay? Uh, the, the, The people who say, well, we're saved by grace, what in the world difference does it make if we're living in sin? How many of you know that's not the heart of a saved person? Verse 29 then, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, this is hyperbole. Jesus is not promoting self-mutilation. It's an exaggeration to make one point very clear to his listeners uh, this is who are his listeners this isn't for all people this is for the king's people saved people you and i are meant to take sin seriously this is the gospel's narrow way the king's people are called to put to death the sin that remains within them that's what i meant at the onset when i said hey to be a christian is to be at war We just sang that earlier, didn't we? We're hearing the voice of our captain as we put our armor on this morning, church. Arise. Matthew 5.30, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Again, it's a hyperbole. You could have no eyes and no hands and still have a sinfully lustful heart. This isn't to do with physically with eyes and physically with hands. The right eye and the right hand represent the most valuable parts of your person in Jesus' day. In other words, our very lives. Jesus is saying, look, you're better off without those things that you value most than to remain in sin. Why? Because adultery and fornication are primary descriptors of those who will inhabit hell. Did you know that? Listen to Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Boy, there's a a verse that gets all up in the business 
of the antinomian, the person who, who uses grace as a license to live in sin. But I want you to notice that the word practice, I don't know what color that is, but it's a different color. Um, the word practice in that passage is, is vital. Uh, it's instructive. Anyone who repeatedly and habitually lives an adulterous lifestyle faces God's wrath. Why? Because it's evidence that the Holy Spirit is not present in such a person. The born-again person, however he or she is struggling in this battle with sin, nonetheless hates that sin. Do you hate sin? I mean, even the sin that... I know you hate the sin in the other people, of course. That's the short jump shot. Do, do you hate the sin that remains within you? Man, I do. I mean, how many days am I going to live thinking, I don't want to be that guy anymore until I'm called home? And I fight from the high ground of Christ's victory who has said to me as one of his kids, I will save you from your sins. You still listening? So rather than living under the influence of the flesh, that simply means the influence of indwelling sin, um, believers are enabled to live under the influence of the Spirit of God. This This is the miracle of the new birth. Your growth, my growth in holiness, ultimately is a work of God. It isn't ours alone. This is a work that God has obligated himself to to every one of his children. He who began a good work in you will hopefully complete it, possibly complete, no, will complete it, will perfect it. When? The day of Christ Jesus. The day that you see him as he is and will have been made like him, says John the Apostle. That means everything God commands us to do we are now enabled to do in the power of the Spirit. Listen to Romans 8. You don't have time to look this up. I'll read it to you. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Who's that addressing? The person apart from Christ lives according to the flesh. But if by the Spirit, who's that? This only makes sense to the believer. Only the believer can live in the Spirit. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And so let's just say, hypothetically, you're one of those people who occasionally hears temptation come along and say to you, you know, there's something better out there than what God has provided. You deserve it. You should pursue it. What are we to do? Well, first and foremost, it might help us to be reminded that the words we're reading this morning are the words of our king. The king of kings is the one who says, my people, in my strength, take indwelling sin seriously. It's not a suggestion. This isn't extra credit Christianity graduate level discipleship this is this is 101 this is the only kind of christianity there is 
In other words, it's not cultural Christianity. This is a command from your king. Christ overrules the legalists who say, well, I've not technically committed adultery. You're never going to pin that one on me. And Christ overrules the licentious person who says, thanks to God's grace, it doesn't matter if I go to that website. It doesn't matter if I keep reading those books. It, it doesn't matter if I have sex with that person I'm not married to. We're grace people. Can we just agree on the strength of Scripture? We don't want to think that way. That's not salt or light in a world that's rotten and steeped in darkness. The gospel way, the narrow way, the way of the kingdom calls us to take drastic measures to guard our thoughts and imaginations, let alone our actions. So I put it this way, and it seems a bit wordy, but maybe you'll still be able to write it down. The king's people live in ways that seem extreme to others for the sake of purity. The king's people live in ways that seem extreme, or maybe you use the word weird, that's shorter, that seem weird to others for the sake of purity. Like what? No, I, I won't go to lunch or out to coffee with a woman who is not my wife, not alone, that's foolish. How many of you know most people on planet Earth today would say, that's weird. What is your problem? No, our tweens and teens don't have cell phones with unlimited access to whatever filth the world wants to shovel to them day by day. We don't do that. And all of the kids in school are screaming, how weird is your family? How extreme is that? I'm sorry this isn't practical. We don't watch that show anymore. We don't go to that play. We don't go to that concert because it celebrates the very immorality my king has commanded me to avoid. So in verses 29 and 30, Jesus uses this hyperbole, this exaggeration, to make clear his call that we close the avenues through which immoral thoughts uh, approach us and, and derail us. This is normal Christian living. You still following? God loves you enough to protect you with this hedge around the gift that is sex within marriage purity in your marriage to him. Now, again, just at, we'll let that pass. It'll just be a moment or two. <laughs> be, be, before we close, let, let's just, I'm, I'm concerned that this be practical as well as, as theological. And so just think of what comes through the eyes. Guys, listen, if your unguarded smartphone is the avenue through which lustful thoughts get fed and you just keep losing battles in that sense, you know exactly what I'm talking about, get some filtering software on that thing or get a flip phone. That's not a joke. Or switch to... Um, Walkie-talkies. 
<laughs> or, or, you, or you smoke signals. That's how serious this is. You are a child of the king. The king's people take indwelling sin seriously. Won't everybody think that's weird? You flip phone people? Won't everybody think that's weird? Listen, people on their way to hell always think kingdom people are weird. That's not our concern. Job offered wise counsel, didn't he? I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Think about what Job is saying. He's not saying he never notices anything. He's saying, look, by God's grace, I've trained my eyes to bounce off of enticements rather than dwell on them. Kingdom people don't savor in private thoughts that are sickening to the king who died to deliver them from that bondage. And what of the hand representing something of great importance and great in Jesus' day, if you didn't, if you didn't have your hands, you couldn't work. If you couldn't work, you didn't live. So let's just go with that. The workplace. That's both important and valuable, isn't it? But it, but if that workplace is a venue for a relationship that constantly tempts you toward emotional adultery outright lustful thoughts, adulterous thoughts, get away from it. That's how serious this is. Won't won't people find that extreme? Yeah, probably. They're going to think you're one of those Jesus people. So we might take this teaching today and just ask the Lord to show us in the quiet of our own hearts Lord, what are the channels through which temptation comes? What what are the relationships, the places, the the, the stuff I focus on where I find that same old sin of lust meeting me so frequently? How can I deal with those things decisively to guard my thoughts? Now let's just, um, my goodness, let some of the pressure out of the room, shall we? Do you mind if we leave here with some encouragement? Would that bother you? The same scriptures that call us to run from immorality remind us to continually run to Christ. In other words, the gospel's narrow way is not simply the way of only obsessing on the avoidance of sin. Don't think that. That's one of the reasons why I'm not a big fan. Um, this is an aside, but I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, of support groups that primarily focus on not sinning. You know, the, hello, my name is so-and-so. I've labeled myself as such-and-such. I'll be that the rest of my life. That's anti-gospel. Turn your thoughts instead to Christ and his kingdom. Remember who you are. Are you at war? Of course. Are you the captain? No, he is. And he's with you. Nurture your relationship with him. Keep doing what you're doing today. Stay in the herd. Stay in fellowship with God's people. Sing of his grace. Abide in him, says the king, and you'll bear much fruit. Sanctification is his work. He's he's with you in power. In other words, the, 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 the wrong thinking that 
that sometimes comes your way, let's just acknowledge it, um, is to be displaced by, by right thinking, sanctified thinking, if you will. Is it, wasn't it David who said, hey, may, may the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, Lord? I know it matters to you what I think about, Lord. May, may my thoughts be pleasing to you. In other words, don't just avoid impurity. Pursue pure things. You're, you're doing that right now, those of you who are attentive. Whatever nurtures faith, don't just avoid adultery in your marriage. Those of you who are married, cultivate your marriage as long as you're married. The king's people, in other words, don't just focus on avoiding sin. There's, there's little hope in that. They pursue holiness in the power of the spirit. I want to quote from another Scottish preacher, Thomas Chalmers. Um, he puts it this way. He says, the freer the gospel the more sanctifying is the gospel. And the more it is received as a doctrine of grace, the more will it be felt as a doctrine according to godliness. I love what he's saying there. Christians remove the snares and tangles of sin, not through legalistic obedience to the law, but through the power of a new and greater affection for Christ, who has said, in his word, look, you're living toward a day, future, in which the bride will have made herself ready. That's the scripture we read this morning, the idea of the scripture we read together this morning, Romans 13, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. You're a believer here this morning and you're wondering, well, when, when do I start applying this right now? Right now, the, the, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Notice the Spirit's expulsive power, as, as Chalmers would say. The negative displaced by the positive. The, 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 the sinful displaced by what is holy. That, this, this paradigm, by the way, is all over your Bible. You, you can't get away from it. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, 22. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So, so, the, so the fleeing part, critical. But it isn't just the fleeing. It's the pursuing Christian sin no longer reigns in you. Christ does. Amen? But sin does remain in you. You're always fighting the enemy within. That's normal Christianity. But victory in this fight is assured. King Jesus will save his people from their sins. Amen? Let's stand on that promise then. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this precious truth that you've done everything necessary to save your people from the law's condemnation. And we feel the weight of that today.
And Lord, you have provided everything necessary to do that work of saving us from the power of sin to dominate our lives. Lord, you in power are killing off sin in all of your people. And we love you, Lord. We want to be soft and shapeable in your hands. And so I pray that you would take this truth and by your spirit apply it to our hearts, Lord, that we might live as salt and light in this world that you are reclaiming for your glory. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.